we've been looking at this phrase under law. We've been talking about the relationship of law to grace. But we looked at uh, Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 14 and 15. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. We're looking at this phrase, what does it mean to be under grace? What does it mean to be under law? We mentioned that the phrase under grace does not appear anywhere else in Paul's writings, but the phrase under law does. We looked at two of those passages. For example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And so, of course, in this section, as we looked at it, we noted that those who are under law are those to whom the law was given and are therefore subject to the law. And in this section, Paul has been uh, teaching us that all individuals, both Jews and Gentiles, are alienated from God. They're sinners before God, and they're therefore in need of God's grace of redemption. The Gentiles are sinners because they don't live up to their conscience. The Jewish people are sinners because they have violated the law that they were given and therefore are under. So we have a sense that to be under the law means to be subject to it and to be responsible for it. The Jewish people um, as a whole were not able to respond to it properly, so therefore, or obediently, So therefore, they were found to be uh, sinners. A second passage that we looked at after looking at Romans chapter 6 was 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul was saying, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That is, to win them to the knowledge of Messiah, that they might experience salvation and the forgiveness of sin. So he tells us, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Here's the phrase, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. And that, so as to win those who are under the law. (coughs) Excuse me. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Messiah's law, so as to win those not having uh, the law. So this section of whoops, this section of Corinthians, we notice these three things that Paul makes. It's the statements that he makes. He is speaking about how, though free, he can identify himself with those who are Jews under law and those who are non-Jews who are not under the law. Obviously, what he means here is those who are subject to the law and therefore responsible to it. And while he says that he could identify with those not having the law, he did not do that, though as, not, though as being free from God's law. So in other words, when he was associating with Gentiles and identified themselves with the Gentile people, he did not act sinfully as they did, though he might identify himself with their culture and uh, with their practices, but not if it involves something 
that is contrary to the nature of God. So that's what he's trying to tell us here. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law so as to engage in sinful or pagan practices. So if he was sharing his faith, for example, let's just say, in a pagan temple like at Ephesus, he wasn't engaging in the worship of these false gods, but he could be in that proximity, he could be in that environment and share the truth uh, of God's ways without succumbing to the sinful practices that might have been uh, going on around him. But what's interesting to me is in verse 20 when he says to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why that's interesting is because we know that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So why didn't he just say to the Jews, I am a Jew? To the Jews, I am as Jewish as any Jew could be because I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. But what he does say is to the Jews, I became a Jew. And so it seems to suggest, to me anyway, that while Paul practiced his Jewish ways, he did not do so in a legalistic manner. And there may have been different ways that Jews observed their traditions, given the community he may have been encountering, and thus he was adaptable to all of those different strands, which suggests that Paul did not feel obligated to obey the law, even as a Jew, but was free to obey the law in whatever sort of manner that was fitting with regard to the Jewish community he was engaged with or sharing with. So it's very interesting because he says he's not under the law. Remember, that's the phrase we're looking at. When Paul says we, because in Romans 6, he says we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Here, he's saying I'm not under law, That is, when he reaches out to the Gentiles. Therefore, he's free to live like the Gentile might. But I'm not without the law of God, so I cannot engage in the sinful activities that might be characteristic of the Gentile world. But I can adapt myself to the Gentile world to the degree to which it doesn't compromise my relationship with the living God. And therefore, he says, and that's because the reason he can do this is because the law that he is now under is not the law of Moses, but the law of Messiah. Now, we haven't yet looked at what is the law of Messiah. We will when we come to the the end. But I would say that the law of Messiah is, he's making reference to the infilling of the Spirit of God that he's sensitive to and that he follows and that he is led by. So the law of Messiah is really the leading of the Spirit of God in the ways of righteousness. So in 1 Corinthians 9, this passage we're just looking at, what we can conclude is believers are not under, law, under the law. We don't earn our salvation, nor are we bound to live by the precepts of the Mosaic law any longer. Prior to the death, burial, resurrection of Yeshua, yes, we would have lived our lives in a manner that was reflected in the Mosaic law. Because Messiah has fulfilled the law and the prophets, we no longer are bound to live in accordance with the Mosaic law as a code of life. Now, we're free to utilize the law, if we so desire, and submit ourselves to it freely, not feeling a sense of obligation, but we're simply not bound by it. 
And believers, while we're not bound by the Mosaic law, we are not without God's law. So what is meant by God's law in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, and also you can see reference in 1 Corinthians 7, and where we ended up last, last time, a couple of weeks ago, was that in verse 21, God's law is synonymous with the law of Messiah. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, God's law, the law of Messiah, another phrase that Paul uses to denote that is the law of love. And he tells us in Galatians 5 that this law of love is expressed in our love for our neighbor, which he says is like the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. He doesn't say it's subservient to it, but it's like it. And that is that we love our neighbor. So I remember years ago when I was in uh, one of my college classes that when we were dealing with the nature of what, it, what does it mean to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so the question was asked to the professor, how do we know if we're loving God with all of our heart, and soul, mind, and strength? And his response was, when you are loving your neighbor as yourself, you are reflecting your love for God. Or how do we know we love God? When we love our neighbor. We might say, oh, we love God because I read the Bible every day or I go to service every time it's uh, offered. Or we can go through these sort of like checklists of religious observances. But it's interesting what the scripture seems to indicate when Yeshua says the great commandment is to love the Lord and the second is like it, to love your neighbor. It appears that the way that we demonstrate our love for God most concretely there are many ways we demonstrate it, but it's by our love for our neighbor and our sacrificial concern for them. James would refer to the law of Messiah as the law of liberty. James also speaks of it as the royal law. And we'll talk more about this when we come to the end. But the law of Messiah, I believe, is what is meant by Paul's writing in Galatians chapter 5, where he speaks about what it means to be led by the Spirit. And in being led by the Spirit, we would manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And it is the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the living out of the law of Messiah. So we're looking at this phrase, uh, under law. So t tonight, let's take a look at Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 23. Paul says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Messiah, that we might be declared righteous by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under, here's the phrase, under the supervision of the law. That's what Paul writes in Galatians. So notice what he says. He says, first of all, before this faith came, what he means by this faith, that is before Messiah came. And so the, the this faith is faith in the completed work of Messiah. So before this faith was possible, before Messiah came, before he died for our sins and rose again, which is the faith 
we have we come to embrace. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners, he says, by the law. Locked up. These are very negative terms he's using. Saying we were prisoners, we were locked up until faith should be revealed. In other words, there's a sense of being bound. A sense of being uh, kept down. That there's an element of freedom that we could not experience in all of its fullness prior to the coming of Messiah. Now, that, having that in mind, that gives us an idea of what Paul means in, or what Messiah meant in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, so as to accomplish everything that is in the law so that freedom could now be experienced. He tells us that so the law was put in charge, that's the phrase I have New International, New, Inter, New International, to lead us to Messiah. The phrase here, when it says to lead us, to put in charge, the, the word here means the law was our custodian until the Messiah came. Now, what is a custodian? This word that Paul uses is a gr- Greek word that referred to an individual, oftentimes a slave, that was purchased by an owner. And this slave or this servant of the family was responsible to watch over a child, to watch over the son from the time that he was in in nursery to his entrance to manhood. So the idea is that this sense of being uh, put under charge in the New International is the phrase, uh, the law was our custodian until Messiah came. But a custodian in the ancient world, this term that Paul is using, is a slave who was put in charge of a child that was born. And he was responsible to see that that child was taken care of, brought to uh, through the steps of training, so that that child would become, uh, would move into adulthood. So Paul is using that as an illustration of what the law was meant to do. That the law was sort of put in charge over us, to lead us to Messiah. Once we are in Messiah, we've entered adulthood, as it were. We no longer are in need of the custodian. So that's how Paul is using this idea. He's saying the law was like that. Until Messiah came, it sort of pointed us to where adulthood was. It was a witness to where adulthood was. It would lead us step by step unto Adulthood, and adulthood is understood as when Messiah would come, we place our faith and trust in him. And no longer are we in need of the custodian because we are now in Messiah. So there's a number of implications of this. That means the law's purpose was not to remedy sin. It also suggests that the law's purpose was not, or I should say that there was point of conclusion for the law's law's purpose, that there was an ending point. There was a beginning and there was an end when it no longer would have uh, that purpose. And this is what Paul is saying. So the law gave direction. And when he speaks about we were held prisoner or locked up, it also served to restrain us in some measure. And so it would keep us to the degree to which we would obey it, 
it would keep us from sinning as much as we might. You know, we certainly wouldn't obey it completely, so we would fall into sin. But to some degree, it would contain, or it could contain it. Now, that's not to say that it would do that in every instance, but because we certainly read of how Israel goes off into idolatry uh, many times. But it could do that for us if we were responsive to it. And where we failed to respond to it, then the sacrifices would provide us with a temporary covering for our sin until uh, Messiah would come. So in Galatians 3, the law could not give us a new heart. The law could not give us an inheritance. And Hebrews 4 points this out as well. There are limitations that the law had. It was a custodian. It was meant to point us to, be a witness to, lead us to Messiah. Once we come to know Messiah, we're now free of of the law. We're appreciative of its role, but its role is now complete. And the law could not give a new heart. Paul's telling us it kept us under restraint until faith in Messiah came. He tells us the law was temporary until Messiah came. So these phrases denote the law. There's a point of time within which the law is operating. And so he says, now that faith has come, He's not talking about saving faith, for that existed throughout history. You know, Israel, uh, the Jewish people, prior to Messiah's coming, could be saved by faith in God and faith uh, and recipients of His grace. But what he means, faith has come, he means this movement marked by Messiah's coming and particularly faith and trust in Him as the fulfillment of all that the Scriptures spoke about. So what Paul is saying here is that now that faith has come, we're no longer under the law. And that's what he said in Romans chapter 6. We're not under law, we're under grace. Grace in Romans 6 is a reference to the grace that is particularly displayed through Messiah. Faith that has come is particularly faith in Messiah that has now appeared, and not just faith uh, in general. So we're thinking about the relationship of the law to grace. The law is a manifestation of God's grace, but it's limited. And here we're seeing something of its purpose. It was temporary until Messiah would come, and it was meant to be a witness to his coming, to lead us to him, so that when he came, we'd believe in him. So it, when I think of this, it reminds me of when I remember sharing with uh, an Orthodox Jewish person. And we were talking about uh, if, if Yeshua is the Messiah, the need to believe in him. And one of the points that we were talking about was if the law, spoke about the coming of Messiah and the need to believe in him when he appeared, then one of the legal requirements of the law is to believe in Messiah when he came. 
Uh, otherwise, you know, here's a commandment we're not believing. So if there's a command that says when Messiah comes, you need to believe in him, well, then it's really imperative that we understand whether Yeshua is Messiah or not, because if you're concerned about obeying the law, one of the commandments you need to obey is to believe in him when he comes. So if he's come, you need to believe in him. And if he's come and you don't believe in him, you're disobeying the law. So when you look at Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says that there's going to be a prophet like unto me, and you should believe in him, or it will be, you will be held accountable for that in Deuteronomy 18. So when he says that he's a prophet like unto me, the thing that marks Moses out from all the other prophets that would make him distinguishable from all the other prophets is what God says about Moses, which is that Moses is not like any other prophet. With other prophets, I speak through dreams and visions and revelations, but with Moses, I speak face to face as a friend speaks to his friend. The thing that's unique about Moses is that, and I don't really know how much more to say it, but that that personal encounter, that intimate encounter that he had with God so that the phrase, whatever it might mean, and we're not really certain what it fully means, but whatever it means, it is used only of Moses that he spoke face to face with God. That intimacy. And when Yeshua comes on the scene, that's the same thing we find here. He speaks about my father. He tells us to pray, pray our father who art in heaven. You know, it's this whole intimacy thing that, you know, my father works to now, so do I. Whatever my father says, that's what I do. There's that face-to-face kind of relationship that Yeshua has with the father that is unique. And Moses had something like it. He didn't have the same thing, but something like it, because that's what is said of Moses. God would speak with him face to face. So when we find that prophet, one of the commandments is to believe in him. And so therefore, this idea now that faith has come, the law, the law was meant to point us to Messiah, reveal to us what it is we need to look for in Messiah, and that when he comes, we would then believe in him as Moses says, uh, we ought to. And that's what this passage is, is focused on. And so in any case, the law then, and this commandment of Moses, is meant to lead us to faith in Messiah when he would appear. And so Galatians 3.20, this faith has come, means God has fulfilled his promise, promises in Messiah, and therefore our trust is in that. As a consequence, we are no longer under the law. And that's what Paul says in verse 25. Now remember, we keep this in balance with 1 Corinthians where he says, it's not as if I am without law, but I'm no longer under the law as uh, the, the code by which I need to live. If that was so, he could not become a Gentile to win the Gentiles. And if that was so, how is it that he becomes a Jew to win the Jews? You know, he's got to be free of all this that he can speak of putting himself under the law though as one who is not under the law because he sees himself as now free. 
And there are other phrases that are interesting too, because when Paul speaks about he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, is touching the law blameless, what does he say? I count all of that rubbish that I might know Messiah. So, uh, you know, Paul is one who doesn't deprecate the law at all, because he says the law is holy, just, and good. But when we put it in the context of Messiah, all of that becomes inconsequential. And that's the point of the writer to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews says Messiah is superior to everything. He doesn't just say greater than. He is superior beyond anything. So he says he's superior than the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. And so now that we have the superior thing, the Messiah, we should not, therefore, put ourselves back under the law. And by the way, that is the point of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a very fascinating book to me because it was written to encourage the Jewish believers not to fall back under the authority of the law and of the Jewish leadership that has rejected Messiah. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about. He wants them to go on in their faith and not feel compelled to have to remain under the authority of the law and of the Jewish leaders who have rejected Messiah. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written like around 66-67. So why, what is the book of Hebrews concerned about? It's concerned about the impending doom that's going to hit Israel in 70 AD. And that is the judgment that would fall on Israel because of their rejection of Messiah, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Remember, that's what Messiah said in Matthew 12 when he said, that um, you've committed the unpardonable sin, which is not a personal sin. The unpardonable sin is not a sin individuals commit. It's a national sin. It's the sin of the nation represented by the Jewish leadership at the time of Messiah having rejected Yeshua. So that sin for which he says there is no forgiveness is the national sin of Israel's rejecting Messiah. And the reason there's no forgiveness is because judgment then is set and there's no way of rescinding it. It's not about personal judgment. It's not about people losing their salvation or not being able to be saved. It's about Israel's national identity. So if we step back for a moment, Matthew chapter 12, you have... Yeshua heals a man who is born, who is blind and deaf. He can't, see, he can't, uh, blind and dumb. He can't speak and he can't see, right? Pretty sure that's the element. You can look it up, Matthew 12. And what happens is Yeshua comes into this man's sphere and he heals him so that he can speak and so that he can see. Pretty sure it's sight and uh, his voice. And... <coughs> And the reason he's struck like this is because demons have affected him. So now when he heals him, the people say, is this not the son of David? So here's the question. Why, at this instance, do they ask, is this not the Messiah? He's been healing all the time, and they don't ask that question. 
But in Matthew 12, they do ask the question, is this not the son of David? Now, why do they ask the question? Because the rabbis taught that the Messiah would do certain miracles which would authenticate his claim that he's the Messiah of Israel. The rabbis taught certain things the Messiah would do that would authenticate his claim he's the Messiah. These are messianic signs that are not just any old signs, you know, healing somebody who can't walk or whatever, but these are particular signs the rabbis said only the Messiah would do. One of them was healing a leper. We won't talk about that, but that's one. Another one was the healing of a person who couldn't speak. So you say, why? Because the rabbis had a mechanism by which they would cast demons out of individuals. Now, Yeshua acknowledges that the rabbis cast out demons because when they say he did this by the power of Beelzebub, what does Yeshua say? He says, if I, by the power of Beelzebub, cast out demons, how do your disciples do it? How do your, your children? But what he means by that is, how do your disciples do it? So he acknowledged that the rabbis were teaching uh, ways of casting out demons, and it was happening. And he says that. How do your disciples do it? So the rabbis had mechanisms by which they would ha- cast out demons. The mechanism that the rabbis used was that you would pursue the demon to get the name of the demon, and then using the name of the demon, you'd cast it out. But what happens when a person can't speak? When a person can't speak, you can't get the name of the demon out of them. So the rabbi said, when the Messiah comes, he'll heal such a person because he isn't restricted by such things. He could heal just in a word. So in Matthew 12, which is the most important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, it's sort of the line of demarcation, it's in Matthew 12 that he encounters this one, I believe he was blind and couldn't speak. Is, am I right? Okay, he's blind and couldn't speak. He, he casts out the demon without getting the name. Sometimes Jesus does get the name, right? The man of Gadara, who are you? We are legion, for we are many, and he casts it out. But in this instance, he doesn't. He just says, come out, and the demon's loosed, and the people say, isn't this the son of David? Isn't he doing the messianic miracle you've been teaching us? So isn't this the Messiah? So now the Jewish leaders have to make a choice. They either say, yeah, and he did just as we said, let's accept him. But they're not willing to do that because they don't want to lose their authority over the people. And so they say, no, he's not. But now they have to explain the miracle. How does he, how did he do this? So they said, aha, you know what he did? He actually used Beelzebub, the prince of demons, not just any old demon, but the prince of demons to cast it out. And it was only sort of like in a, in a fake way, you know. He cast it out, but it's not really cast out, although the guy's talking. So the moment they do that, the Jewish leaders do that, now Yeshua says, no sign will be given to the nation of Israel regarding his Messiahship, but one. And he says it's the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of resurrection. Now we'll step back for that for a moment. But in addition to giving that sign, he says, now the judgment is set, 
this is a sin against the Holy Spirit that is attributing the work of God, the Spirit of God working through Yeshua, to the evil one. And therefore he says that there is no, what's the phrase he uses? That there is no, um, not remission, I'm not looking at it, so I don't have the exact word. But in Matthew 12, but he says now the judgment is set and there is no forgiveness for any sin against the Holy Spirit. Something like that, right? What he means is there's no forgiveness for their attributing, that is, Israel's leadership over the nation, attributing the work of Messiah to the evil one. As a consequence, he says, this generation, you see it over and over again. It's a key phrase taken out of Deuteronomy, reflecting on the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, the judgment of God on this generation. Now Yeshua uses those words that on this generation, judgment will fall. And so the judgment that he's talking about is not personal alienation from God. He's talking about the judgment that's going to hit the entire nation, which will result in its dispersion and its destruction and the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. So, the, the, in Matthew 12, the judgment is set because the Jewish leaders have led the nation into rejecting the Messiah who has come. Now, there's always a faithful remnant who are among Israel, who are freed of the condemnation, but they're not free of the judgment. Just like in the time of Babylon, Daniel goes into exile. The judgment is against the nation of Israel, but Daniel's a faithful man of God. But he's part of the nation. He goes into exile. Jeremiah goes into exile. Ezekiel goes into exile. They experience the judgment of God. The writer to the Hebrews knows what Yeshua has taught. He knows that judgment on the nation is impending for their rejection of Messiah, Matthew 12. Everybody with me? So the writer to the Hebrews is concerned because Yeshua did give one warning. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. So what the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about is that the Jewish believers do not revert back to their Jewish allegiances to where they are submitting themselves to the Jewish leaders that led them into this point of rejection that's going to lead them into this judgment. And he's telling them, do what Messiah told you to do. Flee to the mountains and follow Messiah because he's superior to the angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the law, he's superior to Aaron, Keep your faith in him. Listen to him. And what did he say? When Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. He wants them to escape the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem. He's not taught all the judgment. There's five or six of them in the book of Hebrews. They're not judgment about personal destiny. They're judgment about what is going to hit Jerusalem. And so he's warning them. Don't revert back under the leadership of the Jewish people. 
because then you'll stay in the city and you will not escape. But rather, listen to what Messiah said to flee to the mountains. Now, what's really interesting about all of this, so my point in bringing this up is to get back to here. We're no longer under the law. Therefore, no longer submit yourself to the Jewish leadership and thereby get caught up in the judgment that will hit in 70 A.D. Now, what we do know historically from three sources that the Jewish believers to whom the author has written the book of Hebrews listen to him because they tell us all three writers. One is Josephus, who was with the Roman army, the 10th legion, who records what transpired. We also know this from Eusebius, who is a first century church historian. And we also know it from Hegesippus, who was a Jewish believing first century historian. We don't have any of Hegesippus's writings, but Eusebius quotes them. And all three of these writers tell us that as a result of the writing of the book of Hebrews, the Jewish believers left the city. They leave the city because Titus did something really crazy. He gave any Jews who wanted to leave the city an opportunity to leave. And what we're told by Josephus, Hegesippus, and Eusebius, that the Jewish believers, because of their faith in Messiah and their response to the writer, left and they went to a place called, I believe it was... No, uh, no, in, I forget the name of the, the village now, but it's in the north, like the Sea of Galilee here, it was north in the Sea of Galilee and uh, on the other side. And that, that's where the Jewish believing community had gone to. And as a consequence, they were spared. And the whole point is, Yeshua says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, flee to the mountains. Their leaving was an indicator of their loyalty to Messiah. So the writer to the Hebrews wants to say Messiah is greater than, greater than, greater than, so they will listen to him and that they would obey him. And evidently, they uh, did respond in that matter. So we're no longer under the law. So let's move on to uh, another passage here. And then we'll... uh, see where we are in time, and then we can take some questions. But in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, here's the phrase, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So remember, we're trying to understand what this phrase under law means, because Paul says in Romans 6, we're not under law. We're under grace. We've seen him use it in these phrases, and it suggests a sense of being subject to it, being bound to it, being under its authority. Now it appears he's telling us in Messiah, we're not bound by it, we're not under its authority, and there's a sense of freedom that we now experience from it. Now, this is what he says in in Galatians. Evidently, some people are in deep trouble under the law because Paul says Messiah came into the world to redeem those under the law. So being under the law 
meant we were in trouble. There's something negative about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to be redeemed from it. So he says, some are in deep trouble. He also tells us Messiah was born under the law. But for him, being under the law was no problem because he was sinless. And But for you and I, those of us who are Jews particularly, born under law, that was a problem because while on the one hand, it's revelation from God, on the other hand, it led to our condemnation. Remember what Paul said, we would be judged through the law. So on the one hand, it's a wonderful thing. We have the law of God. But the negative part of it is it condemns us. Now, that didn't make the law bad. It only reveals we're bad. So now we look at the law and we say, well, what can you do about this? Well, I can't do anything about it. You know, certain sacrifices can temporarily cover sin, but I can't remove it from you, the law is speaking. I can't remedy the situation. I can only temporarily address it. But we're going to have to wait until Messiah comes who can redeem us from it, who can buy us out of it, and who can release us from its condemnation. That's what Paul is saying. Now, Messiah was born under the law, He doesn't have to fear the problems because he's sinless. But this also helps us in another way. When we read passages, and this is a possibility, like when Paul, when Yeshua says, and I'll be preaching on this this Saturday, this Shabbat, when Messiah says, I've come not to destroy the law or abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And those who teach the least of these commandments, you know, would be considered, not to obey, would be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. We have to remember something. And that is, Messiah exists during the period during which the law is operating. So therefore, whatever he teaches is going to be teaching with regard to that reality. But you and I now have come into the world at a time when the law is fulfilled. And so we're now under a different covenantal arrangement. We're under the new covenant that's been inaugurated by the coming of Messiah. So in some sense, some might argue, I'm not saying I would argue this point, but some might argue that what Yeshua says in Matthew 5, 17 to 20 is something that is particularly relevant to those under the law while the law was operating. But after his death, the law no longer is operating. And so, therefore, there's something of an irrelevance of what he might have to say. Some people have understood his words that way. I'm not saying we should, but I think it's important to recognize that Messiah is going to obey the law in all of its entirety because his coming was during the period when the law is operating in full. It's not until his death, burial, and resurrection that the law is fulfilled and therefore completed, and the new covenant is inaugurated with its new law, the law of Messiah, that we spoke about before. He kept, he he absolutely kept the law. Of course, now, when you say keep the law, we have to remember there are certain parts of the law that he did not have to keep as such. Well, not the Sabbath, but the sacrifices, because... He doesn't need a sacrifice for sin because he doesn't, well, he hasn't sinned, right? So I, I just throw that out. I need to think about that a little bit more. 
but if the law commands a certain sacrifice when you sin, since Messiah never sinned, he never has to offer a sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that when we see him in the temple teaching, we never read of him sacrificing? You know? Exactly. Right. It sort of works in the reverse. We said before, if you keep all the law, but break one, you're guilty of it all. But if you keep all the law and don't break, or you keep all the law that you can keep, and you never break any of it, you are also obeying all the law. Right? That's kind of, I hadn't thought it quite that way. It works both directions. Um, there's 613 commandments, but if only 500 of them apply to you and you keep them all without violating any others, then you've obeyed the law. Yeah, that's a good point. So Messiah was born under law, but for him being under the law is not a problem. Being under law is the understanding that law keeping will provide righteousness that would enable us to stand before God. But none of us can do that. None of us can provide this. And that's why we need Messiah. So whether you're trusting God to enable you to keep the law, or if you're trusting yourself and thinking that I, I can keep the law, we will fail because we are not able to provide the righteousness we need to stand before God by our own law observing. So, this is the weak aspect of the law. But we would expect to look at that because Paul says we're not under law. So that's why we're looking at these passages. We're no longer under its authority. We're no longer under its necessity in order to attempt to provide our own righteousness. Now, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Messiah will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified or declared righteous by law have been alienated from Messiah. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. So now, here's an interesting thing. Circumcision occurs in two contexts in the Hebrew Scriptures. One is with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, where circumcision is a sign that you are part of that covenant arrangement. In effect, it signified when you were circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the promises that you were a Jew. That's what determined or ultimately determined your Jewish identity. I mean, if you think about it, what does it mean to be a Jew? That's a very complex question, you know. And remember in early when Israel first became a state and they declared themselves a Jewish state and then they inaugurated a political law called the Law of the Return which was a law whereby Israel granted immediate citizenship to any Jew who wanted to come to Israel and make Israel their homeland. 
Now, Gentiles could become Israeli citizens, but you'd have to go through the normal nationalizational process. Here, you have to be here seven years and take tests, whatever it is. In Israel, I'm not sure what its uh, requirements are, but they have a process whereby anyone, Jew or Gentile, can become a citizen of the state of Israel. But Jews are, have a unique opportunity because they don't have to jump through all those hoops. They can come, declare, I want to be a, a citizen, and in a very short time, I'm not sure how short, but in a very short time, you would become a citizen and receive the benefits thereof. They might help you with housing, help you find a job, give you opportunity to learn the language. The Gentiles might not have all of that, at least not at their immediate disposal, but the Jews would. So now the question is, who's a Jew? <laughs> who are these Jews? You know, we know where they are, but who are they? So there was a lot of debate. And so, for example, there was a priest who was of Jewish origin who lived in Israel, you know, from the 1930s on. And when this law came in, he wanted to be declared a, a citizen. But because he had converted to Catholicism or some form of Christianity, they denied him the relevance of the law of return to him. Now, remember, it's a political law. Right? It's not a religious law. It's a political. They can apply it where they want, I suppose. But they did not feel... They ought to apply it to a person who converted to another religion. Well, then there was, you know, a general, I think, or an admiral or something, a captain in the Israeli Navy who was intermarried. His wife was not Jewish. And they said, well, what about his kids? You know? And they denied citizenship to his children because his wife was not Jewish. Even though it's Jewish law that says uh, a Jew is one who's determined by the mother even though it's a secular political law, the law of a return. And, um, so, and then there were those that argued a Jew is only one who's willing to come here. Those who aren't willing to become Israelis are not really Jews. They're diaspora Jews. You know? And so this debate continues to exist to some degree, maybe not as intensely, as to who is a Jew. But in the bottom line, in my understanding... You know, Abraham is the first Jew, but he's a Chaldean, right? I mean, he's not Jewish, Jewish. He was called out by God. And in being called out by God, he became a Hebrew, one who crossed over. And so he becomes the father of the Jewish people. But it's not until chapter 17 that he's circumcised. And once circumcision is implemented with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, that becomes the sign and symbol that you're part of the Abrahamic covenant and thereby a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or a Jew. You know? So circumcision in one sense is attached to the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also found in the Mosaic law. So when Paul makes reference to circumcision here in Galatians 5, he's thinking of it in relation to the Mosaic law as one of the commandments. So he's saying, if you want to claim any importance to keeping the law, you're indebted to keep the whole law. In other words, you're not free to pick and choose. And so when I said before, there were those that would speak of the um, various parts of the law, you know, some were ceremonial, some were judicial, some were moral. He's saying you can't do that and say you keep the moral law, but not the judicial, the ceremonial, the civil. He says you must provide all of it. And that's what it means to be under law. Paul says in Romans 6, we're not under law. So we're not obligated, that's the term I would use, uh, to keep the law as a code of life. But Paul's point is, 
even if you submit yourself to one of these laws, he points out circumcision because that's the issue in Galatians, but if you, if you submit yourself to one of these laws as a legal scruple, he says you're indebted to the whole thing. And so if you're attempting to be justified, declared righteous by the law, is the same as thinking of yourself as being under law. So Paul would argue, I think, that the law is not the way to be declared righteous before God, nor is it the way in order to be sanctified or set apart by God and to become more like Messiah. The law is not meant for that purpose. So if you, if you attempt to provide any or all of your own righteousness before God, he then goes on to say, Messiah is of no benefit to you. It's only when we say we can't provide our righteousness, we need Messiah's righteousness, that his righteousness is beneficial to us. You can't just see, I need it a little bit. I can provide the, the remainder. And so Paul's point is either the Messiah provides all of our righteousness or none of it. So to be under law is something Paul says we as believers are, are no longer um, restrained by that we receive all of Messiah's righteousness and now we're free to live righteously because of the work of the Spirit of God in our heart. And that's why in Romans 6, Paul says, does this then mean that we should go on in sin? He says, no, because when Messiah provides all of his righteousness for us, we die to sin. And we are now by his Spirit enabled to live righteously. That's sort of the um, paradox. So that if you try to provide some of your righteousness alongside Messiah's, he says we then nullify God's grace. So we're sort of caught in a quagmire, you know. To whatever degree we start thinking about, I'm going to submit myself to the law in some way to gain God's favor, or to gain a sense of spirituality that I might not have otherwise had, Paul is telling us that we then would be nullifying the grace of God. And so therefore, it is Messiah's fulfillment of the law, and our faith in him enables us to benefit from what he has done. So this is equivalent that is recognizing the full grace of God is equivalent to not be uh, this is equivalent to not being under grace. So to be under grace means to recognize all that Messiah has done to the best of our ability, you know, that, that we're able to comprehend that. Being under law means to be subservient, submissive, under the authority of the law. But that's what we no longer are, because that which the law was pointing to has now come to fruition. Now, if there are individuals who say, but listen, I really enjoy doing these things. There's no problem, you know. No one, we're not saying, I'm not saying that you should not submit yourself to any of the law's, um, uh, law's qualities or descriptions. You know, if you find, for example, uh, not eating certain animals, you know, uh, Paul's not saying, no, you should eat what, you know, other things. He's not saying that. He's only saying there's freedom here. 
But freedom works in both directions. Like Paul said, to a Jew I became as a Jew, to a Gentile I became as a Gentile. Freedom works in both directions. So to be under grace means that Messiah is all our righteousness. And we receive it in him as a gift by his grace through faith alone. Those are some of the watchwords of the Reformation, you know. Sola Scriptura, Word of God alone, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola Gracias, Grace alone. The opposite is being under law, which means law-keeping is the means of attaining righteousness. And that's attaining any kind of righteousness, whether it's a righteousness that one thinks would, would enable us to stand justified before God, or righteousness that leads to a deeper sense of spirituality, you know, or sanctification. Both justification, being declared righteous before God, and sanctification, being conformed to the image of Messiah, is the result of the grace of God through faith. There are those that say, well, okay, uh, I believe that I'm declared righteous before God without having to submit to the law, but I have to submit to the law in order to be sanctified. There's some that say that. It's not for, for being saved. I realize I'm saved by God's grace through faith, but it's so that it might be more holy or more righteous. And Paul is saying, no, both work by grace. Now, you're free to utilize the law uh, for your benefit. You're free to do that. But it's always the grace of God through faith that works to sanctify us and not our submission or compliance with the law per se. So understanding under law. Under law must mean law-keeping because the person's under law. They think that being under grace is a license to sin without penalty. Right? That's what it says in Romans. You know, if being under law, does that mean that I'm free to sin? No, by no means because I've died to sin. So it must mean, it must have some idea about um, law-keeping. And this is supported by Romans chapter 5, and you can look at that. So being under grace means we receive as a free gift the righteousness of Messiah, and this is a gift, and it's the basis of our right standing with God. And what we're talking about is his righteousness. We escape from being under law by trusting Messiah as our righteousness. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will say he has become our righteousness, he's become our reconciliation, he's become our redemption. Okay, so uh, let's, we'll stop there.